Welcome back, y'all, to Real Ballers Read. We have a very special episode for today. We have two guests, one of the all-stars of Real Ballers Read, my friend Travis Green, and his friend Jason Stanford, one of the co-authors of Forget the Alamo, a classic new book of American history and a massive myth. Um, that a particular state loves to hold on onto. And so we're really going to dive in to this book, into the story. And I just want to welcome you both onto this show. Welcome, Travis and Jason. Welcome, thank welcome. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I can't wait. I'm glad <laughs> to be back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so as we get started, we'd love to just hear the story of how y'all two know each other and how um, for the both of you, like, forget the alamo has become like a, a central book for you in the last year well I, so funny story I, I actually when i read the book um i actually reached out to jason probably a couple weeks ago to set up something for the both of y'all because honestly san antonio and texas the, the state of texas means a lot to my life um, for the listeners who don't remember, I'm a military member. Um, I'm a medical military member, which means that most of my training is done in San Antonio. Anyway, mm -hmm. my, my daughter was born in San Antonio and I currently reside in El Paso, Texas. So Texas means a great deal to my life. So at least for the past 11, 12 years, I have had something to do with the state of Texas. And I actually have old photos of me when I was a 19 year old standing in front of what is known as the Alamo to most tourists, uh, you know, seeing how historic this this building to one of the premier or not countries, but cities in Texas is. So that's that's why this book resounded so much with me um, and to have Jason on and to be able to interact with him. On social media has just been profound to one just a friendship but also to what i believe is one of the greatest myths in american history yeah wait so y'all recently met that's awesome yes yeah wow. and, and i think what he's what he's talking about is, is important for all of us because texas you know it's common to say that texas isn't a place it's a state of mind when you live here, I wasn't born here, but when you live here, you really start to see the world as a Texan. And as Texas accrues political power, whether it's President Johnson or more recently President Bush, and we had a speaker from Texas, we have a huge delegation in Texas. And I, I apologize in advance for Ted Cruz, um, but <laughs> how Texas sees the world is has been increasingly since Vietnam how this country sees the world. And so that's mm. how tex the Texas internal view, that's uh, the self-regard and how Texas then relates to the rest of the world is incredibly important for everyone else to understand. Wow, that's a great jumping off point just for getting into some of the bare bones of the story. We don't have to break down the entire thing, but yeah. if you could give the listeners an overview of some of the characters and the the general plotline of the Alamo, if they don't know it. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. So I suspect I'm a good bit older than y'all, uh, but the story is incredibly resonant to people who are even older than I am. If you are a white boomer, you were raised on this story, okay? Some guys went to Texas and for freedom, and they wanted to be free in Texas. And Santa Ana was a dictator. He was the president of Mexico, and he was a dictator. So these freedom-loving, and it always goes unsaid that they're white, these freedom-loving Americans who had settled in Texas pulled up in the Alamo to defend freedom. And among them were uh, a guy named, oh, God, geez, Colonel Travis. And then there was Jim Bowie, famous for the Bowie knife, big, sort of a half-sword he was incredibly famous. It was weird about the Alamo. There were two celebrities at the Alamo. One was Jim Bowie, who was famous for uh, getting in a big fight. This is how weird America was at that time. He was the second in a duel. And after the duel was over, he got in a fight and gutted someone with his Bowie knife. And the Bowie knives then became famous. And everyone needed a Bowie knife then. And the other guy at the Alamo, who everyone knew, was Davy Crockett who is this fabulous, he was sort of the Marjorie Taylor Greene of his time, except he had actually done stuff, right? He had been a bear fighter. Um, he got caught up in, in the what they didn't understand of as the indigenous rights movement at the time. Um, he was a one-term congressman from Tennessee who got in fight with Andrew Jackson, who was president, so it didn't go well for him. There was a Broadway play about him at the time. Like he was the first celebrity in American history in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he was at the Alamo. So they all knowingly, they had to buy Sam Houston, who was the president of the breakaway uh, Republic of Texas at the time. They had to buy him time. So they fought to the death. They knowingly knew that they were going to die, but they bravely fought to the last man and they all died. And that bought Sam Houston enough time to win Texas for freedom and liberty. Now, when I tell you this, I, I, I sound silly. I feel silly saying that out loud, right? <laughs> I could tell you about how when they all chose to die, you know, they chose to knowingly give up their lives that Colonel Travis drew a line in the sand in the middle of the Alamo. And he said, whoever's with, you know, whoever, um, whoever wants to stay, cross this line. And not only did everyone cross this line, but Jim Bowie, who is dying on his deathbed, had people carry his bed over the line. It sounds silly, but people, it's in textbooks. People were raised mm -hmm. on the story in Texas um, since Disney. The problem is Walt Disney hated communists and he hated labor unions. So he needed to come up with some stories that extolled what he thought of as American values, what we all know now are really politically conservative values. And one of the stories that he came up with was the story of Davy Crockett, which was this great three act play that started with him in the wilderness killing bears and ended with him swinging old Betsy as a rising mountain of dead Mexican soldiers rose at his feet. He was killed in the end in this glorious act of self-sacrifice. So powerful was this image of stoic manhood that to this day, older white guys in America will get a little misty when you mention Fess Parker, the actor who portrayed him. There was a shortage of raccoon fur because every little boy in America needed a damn hat, just like Davy <laughs> Crockett. Right. The truth is that none of that happened that way. It was they were the settlers were in Texas from the south to farm cotton. 
uh, because the land was a lot cheaper there. And the farm, the business model at the time required enslaving the workforce. And Mexico was an abolitionist country. But to settle Texas, they made an exception. And they made an exception because the Comanches would regularly come in and, you know, wipe out the Mexican cities. They couldn't get Mexicans to live in Texas. So why not get some dumb Southerners to live there? Yeah. They'll be a buffer for the Indians. It'll be cool. That was their calculation. Well, we all know what happens when you get too many Southerners together. First, it's the SEC, and then it's Texas, okay? So you got, the, you got Texas coming in, and they realize Mexico sends up an emissary, and they realize, hey, none of these guys are speaking Spanish. None of them are going to mass. They're all just acting like dumb Americans. And so they tried to exert control over them and actually get them to follow the laws of Mexico, things like trade levies, things like, I don't know, not enslaving people. And those were the liberties that the American settlers were fighting for. That was the, the tyranny was, oh my God, they're making a solid Mexican law. So first that was, that's number one. That's the tyranny that they were fighting against was please don't make us follow the law. And the second was they didn't knowingly give up their lives. They were, they didn't believe that the Mexican army was marching on them in February because it's winter and the scouts were Tejanos. They thought, well, obviously these are Mexican spies because they're brown. They just didn't trust them because they weren't white. So suddenly they're surrounded and Travis is like, well, what if we surrender? Could we surrender? How about that? And because what they were doing was technically an act of piracy, Santa Ana said, sure, and then we're going to kill you. You're pirates. Right? It, the rule, they weren't, they weren't a legitimate warning faction. This was a secessionist movement. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, okay, if we're going to die, we, I guess we're going to stay here and fight. We're not just going to give up. But even then, the night before the siege, they said, what if we just give up? So twice they tried to give up. They weren't knowingly sacrificing themselves. These weren't noblemen. They were just stuck. And finally, they didn't die to the last man. There were women and uh, there were Joe, who was Travis's uh, slave, was, was spared. Um Emily Dickinson was spared. Some Tejanas were spared. Some Tejanas were spared. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, they, there were survivors. And we know that because they told their story. But we all think because all of the white dudes died, then they were the last man. Um, and they didn't buy Sam Houston any time. The real military value of the fall of the Alamo was that it panicked the white settlers. And they realized, oh, he's going to kill us. So we have to fight. They thought there was still kind of a way out and it wasn't serious. But when he, when he killed uh, all the people, the defenders of the Alamo, Sam Houston was able to motivate people saying, hey, you got to join the army now. Otherwise, he's going to kill you anyway. You're just hanging out. He's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. But this story has been told in a way where it's, we're the good guys. We being the white guys in Texas are the good guys. We Mexicans, they came from outside of Texas, right? So the Alamo is told as a home game for white conservatives in Texas. And the Mexicans, even though that was Mexico at the time, are told as the bad guy outsiders. Which explains why when I moved to Texas in the 90s, I had, you know, not overtly racist friends who would call, who would refer to Hispanics in Texas as Mexicans. Like, it's not a pejorative. You're, they're, they're Mexicans. Like, it's just been handed down for more than 100 years that Texas is for the white people to to be free and you still see that in 
all of like this, the political rhetoric of, you know, Texas is about liberty, but Texas is miracles about deregulation and freedom from taxation. It's all about us not having any restrictions on us and keeping literally still now at the border, keeping them out. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the, one of the crazy, um, parts of, of the book for me was just seeing all the kind of parallels and kernels of the civil war in this battle and yeah. uh definitely did not know at all yeah the role of slavery that the alamo um had also and so as putting on the historian hat for a second like how did you even feel certain of that like through correspondence what did you have to read uh in order to even clear that slavery had the role that it had in this battle that, that's a great question first i yeah. want to get off the i am not a historian the other two <laughs> co-authors are not historians oh wow. uh, two of them yeah they're, they're journalists i i you know i'm a writer this isn't a history of the alamo it's a historiography it's a history of all of the different ways we've told that people have told the story of the alamo and what you said there are all sorts of parallels there are also to the Civil War, there's also the parallels in the book to our present day. Yeah. Um, the historiography of the Alamo is over and over again how the politicians have prevented historians from telling the story accurately. And we're seeing that now. But this is a popular history. So this is really affected by the, the politics of things. And but the academics, the historians have been telling this story accurately for a long time amongst themselves, right? I talked with a guy who was in charge of an expert panel that was, that was reviewing the Texas history book. They have to be reviewed every seven years here in Texas. And he acknowledged that in the, in the preceding seven years, historians had come to a popular agreement that slavery played a huge role in what is called the Texas Revolution, which what we call the Texas Secession. And they all knew it. This is old news among historians. And we just kind of stumbled upon it at a time between all the historians going, yeah, it was slavery. And all the politicians having no clue this was happening. And every, all the school children and all the teachers and everyone that thought it was, oh, it's about liberty, right? So we come in at exactly this right time saying, hey, you know what historians have been saying? This is cool. And all the politicians freak the hell out. Like, you can't say that. <laughs> so we felt really confident. That's a great question. We felt really confident because all the historians were agreed about it, right? It was just the politicians who couldn't agree on it. So we thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is going to be good. That's not at all why we started writing out the book. And we were really nervous about saying it because you know, we're three middle-aged right. white guys from Texas. No one's coming to us for advice about slavery and history. No, that's, that's super true. So for you, Travis, like, was this the first time that you really, you know, learned this history in depth or when was the first time, you know, you learned of the Alamo? So for me, um, in depth, yes, uh, I definitely have to say that, but like I said, Texas and San Antonio means a great deal to my life. Out of the 17 years I've been in the military, 10 of them have been in the state of Texas. And 
from the moment I got into the military where after basic training, I go to San Antonio for my actual training. I stay in the state of Texas as an outsider who grew up in Atlanta and then part part of the time in D.C. Um, you don't really learn about Texas and the Alamo unless you hear the Anglo hero narrative that Jason explained. That's all you really hear is that this was a very heroic story, right? So the first time you go there and if you are still, um, how can I put it, just proud of your country, this is like the paragon. This is the image that you see of liberty, of freedom, of all the things that America espouses as their amazing values, right? But outside of Texas, nobody really hears anything else about it. So until I got there, until I saw it myself, until I spoke with other Texans, how they felt about it, I honestly had no idea about the in-depth nature of what the Alamo narrative meant to Texans. And then until I talked to Hispanic Texans, I I had no idea just the the narrative that the Anglo narrative has for them. Because for them, it means something totally different than what it means for white Americans, especially white Texan Americans. And that's the part that one kind of irks my soul, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's this, it's this myth that we tell ourselves that, that makes us feel better. I think in the last time I spoke to y'all, Jan was talking about how we make stories and how we tell stories to make us feel about ourselves. And what Jason and the other authors did was shine a light on what this paragon of Texas history has made all of America feel. And that's, that's how I've come to see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, one, one funny thing about like reading this book is it really did take me back to our public school history education, right? Because we're in Ohio and still learning about the Alamo. Um, and it's in that web of the the Anglo, the white Anglo hero, right? Where it's the Alamo and then uh, there's uh, Lewis and Clark, right? There's the stories of the South. There's Paul Bunyan, right? Like we're getting all of these different kind of like uh, images and myths put together. Um, and they're also within the context of learning about something like the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, too, right? Even not just yep. within the U.S., but also just in the context of who the U.S. wants to identify with, Greece and Rome, and that like kind of that military vibe. And what was so weird is that like you know we're not in Texas in particular, but we're still a part of that story. And you know I think a lot of it does come down to who you identified as kind of like the main conduit of the belief right and and being like white boomers um but then i'm also curious about the textbooks too because you know you just mentioned that the textbooks in texas are uh reconsidered every seven years but the people that write the textbooks are not necessarily the the academics they're not necessarily the politicians how how are the textbooks and the ways that they are like still being written um like a contentious point in how the story is uh, like evolving and changing. Well, Jan, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's, uh, again, I, as a liberal Texan, I feel the need to preemptively apologize, uh, because to, 
there's there's the California market and there's the Texas market. And if you want to sell a textbook in America, you got to get it past one of those markets. And so where Texas determines the textbook market for about half of the country. So the way it happens is um, the state board of education, or the state legislature says, okay, there's the thou shalt and thou shalt not. Like they'll, they'll say, you can't be certain things, right? Like now, after George Floyd and everything, you say, you can't teach critical race theory. You can't teach history in a way that blames white. That would kind of, you know. So you have historians actually sit down and write a, a history. They, they, have, they know what their constraints are, and they try to get as much history through that hole as they can. They know, right? These history, historians these days, this generation of historians, they all know what the damn history is, but they also know what the politics are. So the, the whole textbook adoption process is how much history can we get through the political process? So they'll write a textbook. Actually, it starts with the standards, right? In the second grade, you know, people need to learn but da, 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 about Texas history, all these things. And so they'll fight over what those things are. And the historians will first say, okay, then there'll be an expert panel and they'll say, okay, here's how we'd adjust the standards based on how much time there is to teach, how much a second grader can reasonably expect it to memorize versus understand, things like that. And then the politicians will fight over it. And that's where everything usually goes to hell, right? Because the Republicans will say, well, they absolutely have to learn about Davy freaking Crockett and they have to read William Travis's letter you know, the, the victory of death one, and they absolutely have to do this. And then the, the liberals who are largely black and Hispanic on the state board of education will sell. God damn it. If they're going to learn about those idiots, they have to learn about our people. And then they'll fight about, well, did your people even matter? And then the, the Democrats will walk out and it'll be stupid. That's literally the, that's the adoption process in Texas. Wow. In the end, the Republicans have the most votes and they say, screw you, we're going to do what we want. That is how history is determined in Texas. Mm, I apologize. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Dang, all right. <laughs> Sounds like how most history is adopted. <laughs> and then, too, along with uh, going back to my own childhood education, you named uh, Disney as someone who was critical to this. I, I was thinking about um, The Hidden Wound by Wendell Berry reading your book because uh, mm. he was the first person that had called out Disney in that way around um, just like romanticizing the South and giving them a story to believe in after the Civil War. Um, but are there other ways, or maybe it is within Disney, but how else do you see these different multimedia forms, uh, you know, more contemporary that also do play into this kind of story, right? Maybe it's not directly about the Alamo, but what's happening in Texas, right? Are there cartoons, Davy Crockett cartoons still coming out? Are those being updated? Like, how do y'all see the kind of ecosystem of stories around the Alamo? Well, for a long time, there was something called Texas History Movies, um, which was basically just a comic strip where they, in the paper, in the Dallas Morning News, they would run this incredibly racist comic strip. And this is back in the 50s and stuff um, when they just called it comic strips. And it would depict Texas history and all the, the indigenous people were dumb and the Mexicans were crooked and... The slaves, the black people were grateful to be enslaved, you know, cool. It's nice. Um, and these comic strips were literal, they were compiled into a book and they were taught in schools. So that's one way. Um, another way that Texas history is rewritten 
is the monuments. Um, about 50 years after the Civil War was our, you know, about 50 years after Texas was granted statehood was about 50 years after the Civil War. And back then, Texas was thought of, thought of itself as a Confederate state. And they realized that's not really good for business. We need to be considered a Western state. And so that's when they started with this yeehaw version of Texas liberty, right? This, that's when the notion took hold of, the, oh, no, no, they were really fighting for liberty. And so they put up monuments about their valorous sacrifice. And that's when the Alamo monuments went up. And that's so all of these monuments that have been here since 50 years after the Civil War or 50 years after Texas got statehood have been telling history a different way. And that's why after George Floyd, when they started taking Confederate monuments down, they started reexamining these Texas Alamo monuments. And it wasn't so much the people who were taking them down. It wasn't the, the, the Black Lives Matter folks who were going after the Alamo monuments. It was the Texas conservatives who were defending the Alamo monuments when everyone else was going after the Confederate monuments. Because in their mind, they were kind of the same thing without really being able to articulate it to themselves. And that's why under state law, they passed a law saying, no, you can't take down Confederate monuments. And they got something in there added to it. Oh, and also the Alamo stuff. You can't take down any Alabama. So it's the same history here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, I think that's interesting, Jason, because even even within my, my realm, like we still have soldiers who are upset that we're changing names of bases around yep. the country. So now Fort Hood is known as Fort Cavazos. Uh, yeah, please don't don't get you know people started on that. You know, okay. Fort Fort Bragg <laughs> is now known as. Fort Liberty, Fort Benning, known as Fort Moore. And yeah. I, I can't go a day without listening to somebody complain about the renaming of those um, historic bases. Um, mm -hmm. Even even in El Paso, I don't know how familiar y'all are with El Paso. Jason, I know you're probably very familiar with El Paso. Mm -hmm. El Paso is very, very, very close to Mexico. Oh yeah. <laughs> when I tell y'all the house that I have right now, yeah, yeah, the house that I have right now, I could see yeah. Juarez from my backyard. Wow, it's like the same city, right, Travis? Yes. Yeah, it's just got a border in between it. Oh, yeah, wow. and it's and it's funny because as I drive my kids to school every day, I see the the wall, and it. <laughs> It's for no apparent reason because most Mexican school children come across the border to go to the school that my kids go to. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, more than more than anything though, I feel like this book has really, you know, we've we've been talking about it, but really illuminated just like how much um folks are captivated by myths. And even this cast of characters, right? Uh, Davy Crockett, uh, Travis Bowie is damn near like a Rasputin type character. He can't <laughs> die. Um, like how much even their personal lives were uh, carried by those myths, you know, Davy in making him famous. Um, but I'm curious from the both of you. So like, Jason, like where do you see uh, the the state 
of the Alamo myth now, if you could say you have a pulse on Texas and their understanding of this event, has it progressed at all since you were a child? And then for Travis, in what ways do you think, what do you think is the biggest myth of the U.S. military, both from a citizen point of view and being in it? Well, back when the Alamo myth was ascendant, you know, and Disney was was pushing Davy Crockett as this American hero, and Texas was mostly white. It is not that way anymore. Um, and we are very, very close to Hispanics become, becoming not just the biggest population, but the majority of Texas. And combine that with attitudes of millennials and Gen Z about these matters, and they are not married to this myth of liberty. And they are perfectly comfortable re-examining it, at least as far as I've seen. And, you know, my kids were taught to, like, they took Texas history and they had to diagram out exactly where they thought Davy Crockett died on the damn thing. And, you know, like, it, they still had to go do all the stuff. But it doesn't affect the way they look at the world, right? They, they're not Texas Uberalis, as was the case when I got here. Like, Texans are... Texans get a little physical warm feeling when they see a silhouette of the shape of the state, right? Like they fucking love the state. But my kids are like, yeah, cool. Bye. <laughs> um, but politically, it's still in this transition, right? There's still a big fight. And there's, on one side, there's people saying, what if we actually just stop the history and maybe don't perpetuate racist myths? And then there's the conservatives. And I'm really proud that the title of our book has become shorthand for this entire movement of what have we just taught history? And they call it the forget the Alamo mindset. And it makes me so proud to be used as a pejorative by a white Republican. Let's go. No, I'm actually glad I got the forget the Alamo hashtag because I actually have seen that movement proliferate across Texas, especially in El Paso, because the way... People remember the Alamo here is completely different than even people in San Antonio, how they remember it. Even when I was stationed in Colleen, Texas, like how people remember it there. So actually, yeah, that brings up a question I wanted to have for you, Jason. So how have you seen people in different cities in Texas remember the Alamo? Because I know just just from my experience of living in El Paso for the past two months and then living in other cities in Texas, have you seen differences in how people in other cities remember it? Yeah, Travis, it, yes. And you made a really good point earlier that I just blew by about how his, this myth hits Hispanics different. Um, we thought we were writing a funny book, right? Just about how there was never a line in the sand and this popular understanding isn't really so. And then one day we were talking to this historian named Andres Tirina, the godfather of Mexican-American history. And we thought we were going to talk to him about what historians think. And he told us about being uh, a kid of migrant workers, which means he was a migrant worker growing up. In, and he was in West Texas when he learned uh, Texas history. He's the only Hispanic in the class. And his teacher could not pronounce Andres. So she said, Andy, Andy, you stand up. And she said, it could have been Andy's grandfather what killed Baby Crockett. And once you start asking Hispanics about how it's taught 
you start hearing that about how the teaching of Texas history made them feel like the bad guy in their own state and how it, it's a story of good guys and bad guys. And there is a racial component to it that is unavoidable or an ethnic component in this case. A good example in cities, a friend of mine, uh, Dave McLemore, grew up in San Antonio, white boomer. And he said, after school, they used to play Alamo in the alley. And it was the Hispanic kids were playing the Mexicans and all the white kids were playing the Texans, except when they played Alamo, the white kids won. And there is a poll that was done. Couldn't figure out how to get it into the book. Most Hispanics in Texas cannot correctly identify who won the battle of the Alamo because of the way it is taught in the state of good guys and bad guys, and they are the bad guys. Now, you're right. The farther you get from San Antonio, the more accurately anyone can see it. Hispanics, this is largely a white myth. So it's largely a story that white people hand down to their children. Uh, and we hear it, we heard it over and over about how Hispanic fathers would tell their children and Hispanic mothers, no, they're, they, these guys are a bunch of slaveholding criminals. Like these were liars, do not believe the story. Um, Rosa Castro, Julian and Joaquin's mom, she was a big um, political activist. And remember, she, she got in all that trouble uh, in, what was it, maybe it was in 2010 or 2012. Julian was the keynote at the DNC. And so she talked, to, she gave this big interview. There was a big, I think, a New York Times profile of him. And she got a quote in there about how everyone at the Alamo was a bunch of criminals. And oh my God, it blew up, right? But it wasn't a controversial opinion among Hispanics. They all knew this. And the most gratifying thing about it, about our book is, besides becoming a Republican pejorative, is that younger Hispanics read the book and now realize that their parents were right all along. That what they learned in school was a lie. And dad, dad was telling me the truth. And that's, that's kind of cool to be able to help back up that family history. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Have you been able to change the mind of someone who full-heartedly believed in this Alamo story, Anglo narrative, conservative person, or at least had like a productive dialogue with someone who you think disagreed? Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember, so book came out in spring of 2021 which means we've done a lot of Zoom book appearances, right? Yeah. Couldn't do a lot in person. And I remember doing this one, it was for a Democratic club in the Houston area. And it was one, for some reason, it was set up where I could see all of the participants' faces around the top. And there was this one, I was always worried. We were always on the lookout for, okay, boomer dudes, that's going to be our, that's, we got to watch out for the boomer dudes. And there's this guy, he had sort of, you know, cool guy, length, silver hair, right? You know, probably listen to a lot of Don Henley. And, and, uh, he just kind of looked the whole time. I'm like, Oh God, this guy's going to ask a question. Finally, he asked a question. And of course, being a boomer dude, it was more than a, a comment. And, uh, he said, you know, I read this book and I couldn't believe it, right? This is not anything that I was raised with. And I talked to one of my Hispanic friends about it and he said, Oh, I'm glad you know now. Now we can really talk about it. Right. He said, I'm able to have conversations with my Hispanic friends that I was never able to have before. And that meant a lot to me. Like, but it's also really painful knowing that there are all those folks out there 
who are waiting to see if they can trust us, right? With something as basic as what actually happened in Texas history, but it's so racially charged, like, okay, white boy, you got to prove yourself before I can actually talk to you. Okay. Which probably happens a lot that I don't know, but it's just, it's, it, I'm glad that the book has been able to bridge that divide for a lot of people. Yeah, that's, that's really great to hear because I, I was just formulating a question around, or like first the observation that the book really is like a story of what it means to alienate someone and to alienate like a group of people. Um, yeah. But then the flip side of that, right, is of course that there is another story of what it means to like reassociate, reacquaint and get to know other folks in a different way. Right. So you, you, you I mean, you answered it before I even <laughs> I got to ask. So thanks on that. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> great, great answer too. You know? <laughs> what, so what, what was the process like? Uh, Y'all are like, you know, beastie boys of, of American his, history, you know, uh, historiography. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, just writing this book, how is it to write a book with two other authors and how much of the research process was each of your, your own parts or? Um, it was, uh, so we divided it up. Brian took everything through the end of the battle. Chris took everything from, uh, the great, uh, the scrape, I think it's called, I forget what it's called to, um, John Wayne. And I took John Wayne to the present. Wow. So, uh, and we realized late in the process that they were the two reporters and my background is in public records research and they had gotten the, the part of the book where it, it involved a lot of public records research and I had gotten the part that involved a lot of reporting and they went, oh, crap, we should have done that. But I got good at reporting, so that was cool. Uh, so it involved a lot of talking about what we thought the book was about. Like again, like, cause that evolved as we, as we learned more about it and also how I call it the altitude, right? Do you, you don't talk about each day in the history of the Alamo. You have to talk about trends. Okay. Well, do you talk about what stories do you tell? And you know, you're going around like this and then you dive down here for a scene and then you come back up here and it's tough to find that altitude with three different people. So each of us wrote up our part. And then Brian wrote over top of it all to make it all sound like it came from one person because he had the most experience. Mm. Yeah. I mean, writing a book with Brian Burrow is kind of like batting ninth on the 1927 Yankees, right? You get to learn from Luke Gehrig and Babe Ruth. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That was an analogy. Um, you know, I feel like we can't talk about Texas without talking about guns. Um, in the couple yeah. of times, in the few times that I've been, uh, there, yeah, guns are everywhere, you know, and like, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been to a range or shot a gun. Um, and so I guess another thing that I had been kind of reflective of with this story, which, by the way, forget the Alamo. Do you all have hats? You need hats. No, yeah, no, say hats is next <laughs> for the full brand. Um, but no, I, I guess I just had like a, a new sense of curiosity to all the ways in which even my own time in texas was informed by this story without me knowing it and maybe that connection with the guns is a relatively loose one but i'm just curious like how y'all see like the other cultural aspects of texas being informed or shaped by uh this this kind of like foundational mythology yeah i'd be really interested to hear what travis has to say about this but first okay. 
I think you're absolutely right that the whole, um, the gun thing, it's two things. One, nowadays it is the government can't take it away from us, right? It's a totem more than anything else. And the first person who ever wanted to take gun away from a Texan was Santa Ana. And so it, it kind of comes back wow. to that. Yeah. The other thing is Texans were really good at shooting guns and riding horses at the same time. It's why, like, you'd think that that's silly, but the way that they, the, the way that white settlers first fought the Indians, the Comanches, was to ride up a horse, get off, and point, and then the Comanche would just come by and kill you, right? Yeah. And it was, and the Texans were the first ones to figure out how to ride and shoot like the, 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 the Comanches. Yeah. And so that is incredibly important to the local identity of, hey, we're really good at this. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't really get used much anymore. That's a skill that has fallen out of, that is out of favor. Um, but it still goes to what Texans think about themselves. But Travis, being in the military, amazing perspective on guns in Texas. <laughs> so, Jason, like, th- thank you for bringing that up because I actually forgot about that because y'all have one part of the book that discussed uh, especially friends that I've had because I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan numerous times and the way the 42% of the active duty population of the United States military remembers Texas is that they take that with them everywhere they go. There is, there is absolutely no chance that a soldier sailor or whoever from the state of Texas did not bring a Texas flag with them wherever they go. <laughs> like they will break it, whether whether it's the subdued flag that you put on the uniform or a large Texas flag, they will bring it with them. Um, I actually have pictures with old friends of mine when we were in Iraq and they have the Texas flag above the American flag. That's just the mm-hmm. type of reverence they have for the state. But even culturally outside of the military, like uh, you could ride around El Paso right now and see a Chevrolet Silverado Texas edition with the silhouette of the Alamo as the background. Same thing for a Toyota Tundra silhouette. The way that Texans, especially Anglo Texans, just remember that story and how it has proliferated not only in the military, but just culturally around the state of Texas is one of the most, I don't want to say amazing things, but it's just, it's amazing in the way that we remember it. And then kind of like the second part is why we get it so wrong or why we have allowed the common narrative to become so wrong. And I know Jason's has articulated it so eloquently on why we got it so wrong but it's like two forces fighting fighting each other like we want to tell the story right but then there's this other faction that wants to hang on to this narrative because i i guess it's because i'm a black american i don't know why you want to hang on to something that's incorrect but right now it's i don't know i don't know how to describe that part Boy, Travis, it's, it, it goes back to, I mean, it is the experience of white superiority. That myth says we're the good guys, right? And if we have to give up that myth, if we have to tell the stories right, then we're telling stories where we're not the good guys. Well, if we're not the good guys, then why the hell are we in charge of everything, right? Why do we have all the damn money? Why? Then, then 
it all, fuck, they don't got to be a real meritocracy. I got to earn my way. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is a setup. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, very how, how much do each of you identify with Texas? Right. Full circle moment. <laughs> it was years. It was about a decade before people stopped calling me an Oregonian here. Um, yeah. And now I'm, I, I feel more like an outsider now than I did when I first moved here. Yeah. And I am forever now going to be described as a Texas writer. And every time that happens, I'm like, wait, I just live here guys. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's hard not to become part of this place. It's very sticky. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I completely agree because I think just for me, I've become a Texan. I can't, there's no a way around it. Like, even though I don't have the ick factor that you have, Jason, it's, especially, especially because my daughter was born in San Antonio. My daughter was born in, um, at Bamsey, um, Brick Army Medical Center, right on the, uh, Fort Sam Houston base. Um, my son even gets a little bit sad to know that he wasn't born in the state of Texas. And yeah. it's, it's weird that like he, he could say that. Um, <laughs> just so much of my adult life has been centered around the state of Texas and what Texas has meant to the United States military. So I've become Texan. My home of record is now Texas. I, I bought two houses in Texas. It's, it's now like a second part of me. It's, hey, Travis, your younger years was formulated by Atlanta and D.C., but your adult life was made in Texas. Mm -hmm. So how I remember Texas is a is a different, it, it looks different now, and I want it to be better moving forward. Mm. Hey, Travis, maybe you're like me in this regard. When people from out of state insult Texas sort of ignorantly, like everyone in Texas is like this. Do you get a little defense? Like, no, there are a lot of us. We're just oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And not not to mention, like, there's so many misnomers about the state of Texas that like, especially living here in El Paso. I don't know how. So I don't know if Jace, uh, Jan and Miles, do you realize how large this is how large the state of Texas is from where I am living at in El Paso? It is closer. It's a closer drive to San Diego, California, than it is to Houston, Texas. What? Oh, yeah. I, I can I can get to San Diego, California what? in a 10 hour drive versus a 14 and a half hour drive to Houston, Texas. That is how large is the on state the of Texas is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What? Yeah. You could get to the Pacific easier than you could get to the Gulf. Basically, that's crazy. Yo, honestly. Yeah. I was ready to be like, oh, I know how big Texas is, but then you blew that out the corner, you know, like, because yeah, it, it is that, huge, but like, goddamn. Yeah. Add to that how diverse it is. There are about 150 languages spoken in Houston. Wow. And my favorite thing is to tell a New Yorker that Houston is more uh, diverse than New York. They get really <laughs> angry about that. Yeah. 150 languages? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, we, wow. I work for the school district here in Dallas, and we have about that many languages spoken by students in our schools that's incredible wow. that that yep. sounds that sounds chaotic but <laughs> it really it is it's wonderful yeah, yeah that's great that's <laughs> the best place to be <laughs> wow so the whole you know heart of the book too is that 
the Battle of the Alamo never stopped at just the fight itself. You chronicled the story. You know, I was honestly shocked that by the time the fight was over, I was like, wait, we're only like, how if we threw this? Book? I was like, wait. <laughs> um, but where do you see both your book now in the place of that history? Where do you see it going in terms of the ongoing battle? And possibly what do we have to do to shake things up even more? Do we need to send like a thousand copies to Phil Collins' house? Like what what do we need to do to just start a fire? You know what I'm saying? I think so. Every generation tries to tell the Alamo story. You know, John Wayne had the movie and then like there's always a big Hollywood movie. So I think the next time this gets told, there was a 2004 movie. It just started out, Ron Howard wanted to make a Sam Peckinpah like real honest to God, here's what really happened version. And he started out by gathering historians. And these were largely boomer historians. So they were both married to the fact and to the good guy thing. And so you can see the tension in the movie. But that movie was made right after 9-11, right? And it came mm -hmm. and they tried to tell a complicated story about what really happened. Meanwhile, coincidentally, 300 came out the same year, made hundreds of millions of dollars, right? People wanted the revenge myth after 9-11. Wow. Oh. It's going to be, I think, ap I really think we're in this weird transition phase. Do you guys have kids? Childhood oh, no. kid. When kids are real damn tired, the babies, babies, toddlers, real tired, they act out, right? All they want to do is go to sleep. You know they just want to go to sleep, but they just kind of explode with emotion and frustration and anger and, and exhaustion. I think that's what white conservatism is doing right now, Right. It's exploding and you can't reason with it. You can't calm it down. You just got to get through it. So they'll go to sleep, right? So we can get to the next thing. I think we're in that phase right now. We have been for the last 10 or so years. Started with the Tea Party, freaking out about Obama being a African-American. And now we're just like, and now suddenly we're having to deal with Hunter Biden's penis everywhere. Like, guys, settle down. I think when we get to the other end of that, there's going to be a real a re-examining of American myths in a way that isn't us versus you, that isn't, you know, and it doesn't put the whole onus on black artists to retell these stories, right? Because we're having, we're doing a lot of retelling of stories from the black artist perspective that are incredibly useful, but everyone's not together on this retelling yet. Mm. And I think Texas is going to be an interesting way of retelling a white myth in a way that it actually includes the tr truth, that it includes Hispanic Americans who are largely left out of this story, national story of racial recon reconciliation. Mm. And I think it's going to take a big Hollywood movie to do it. And it's going to, um, no one's ever done it successfully. And I think that's, it, maybe it could be a series, maybe it could be like, like Roots, but for Hispanic Americans. And, <laughs> you know, because 100 million people saw Roots and it yeah. fundamentally changed the way I understood as a little American, you know, seven-year-old boy in America, what slavery was like. No one could ever tell me that 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 slaves were happy because I saw Roots, right? I don't know. It could be whether or not it was true, but every like enough adults said, "Oh, that's what happened." And I was like, yeah. "Oh, slavery sucked." Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, man. We, we haven't had that, that for yeah. the Texas myth, and the Texas myth is so white conservatism is so rooted in the Texas myth that that's where I think it's going to be, the retelling is going to be linked to whatever come, the political transformation of white conservatism. 
yeah yeah I, I'm, i've actually been really interested for um the killers of the summer moon movie to come out because it is like yes. oh yeah flower moon yeah um to come out because uh because it is like a resonant story in that sense um yeah but, but yeah i, I was important. thinking yeah yeah it, it being told by scorsese i think is important mm -hmm. you know it shouldn't it should not be up to artists of color to have to redo white myths right we fucked it up we need to fix it Mm -hmm. it's been interesting hearing you say that jason because i've been on this kick of reading how myths have real world implications lately so another book i wanted to talk to jan and miles about was a book by dr bart Ehrman. i don't know if you've heard of him or read any of his books but he's a he's a new testament scholar that um, goes back and re-examines a lot of what the Bible and how it was formulated, um, basically the real world implications of what the Bible does for people in the world today. So his latest book, Armageddon, actually looked at the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, and kind of parlayed that in how people, how do people read Revelation and what are the real world implications for political society today? And one of the big portions was the, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I don't want to like go on a tangent with <laughs> that, but how how politicians can read Revelation and see how, all right, now this story is going to formulate our public policy for Israel-Palestine. And I think what you, Chris, and Brian did have illuminated how we need to utilize public policy to move forward. Um, one, because you were telling a truthful story and because you're telling a truthful story, now we can formulate public policy on how we educate young Texans moving forward in the future in the same way that Dr. Ehrman can illustrate, all right, here's how this myth has created public policy. And now we can tell a more truthful story about how we can formulate Middle Eastern policy. Yeah, that's interesting. Traps bring up a really good point about how a contested ground can become contested myth. And it's not just the story, you actually have to deal with the ground. Because in the Alamo, you know, a lot of it, as boring as it sounds, boiled down to a zoning problem. The, the street that ran through the middle of the Alamo was owned by the city, and the state owns the, 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 what we think of as the Alamo with the Taco Bell roof and everything. And then Private interests owned the building where Jim Bowie died. And what? yeah. And so to rebuild the Alamo, you had to get all of these different interests together. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And talking talk about another myth that is for another episode, even zoning laws, right? Like that's <laughs> that's a different that's a different story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Israel Palestine conflict, zoning laws. Yeah. yeah. Next time, I think we'll solve Middle East. We will solve uh, peace in the Middle East before we solve housing in America. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably correct. <laughs> <laughs> too real. Uh, no, uh, Travis. Thanks so much for the for that wreck too. We, yeah, you know, really yeah, we were we were just getting ready to ask you all, you know, what other books have been really like impactful for you in your lives. It doesn't have to be like a contemporary or anything related to yeah, so, I just you know would love to so I know y'all always ask me that question so yeah I exactly yeah you right? know it was so, coming yeah you, so, you preempted so it. <laughs> it's 
So there's this one I'm currently reading called Supreme Inequality. Um, it's about how the Supreme Court has kind of turned equality on its head ever since we've um, shifted from the Nixon administration moving forward after Nixon had appointed four conservative justices. Mm-hmm. And I actually wanted to get Jason's take on this because there was a, a landmark decision. Um, uh, forgive me if I'm getting some of it wrong, but it was San Antonio Independent School District versus Gutierrez, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, but part of the decision was how we use um, public funding for public schools. Um, and the the case was brought forward and fundamentally changed how we fund public schools, not only in San Antonio and the Alamo Heights district, but across the United States in general. And the Supreme Court ruled that um, pretty much you're wherever you're getting your property tax from, if it be a largely wealthy area, they are it is constitutionally, I guess, allowed to allow funding from that area to fund that public school, which creates inequality across public schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and San Antonio was the city that brought that case to the Supreme Court. So it's not only just the Alamo that San Antonio is bringing to the national forefront. We we brought a San Antonio and the city brought a very important case for public schooling to the Supreme Court and ultimately made America less equal because you can go to the Alamo Heights district in San Antonio today and see that it is still a very prominent area. But then no less than a, probably like 10 miles down the street. Another area does not have the funding to educate its children that Alamo Heights does, but they educate well. I forgot if if I'm saying this correctly, they educate 10,000 more students per year than the Alamo Heights district with mm-hmm. less funding. Yep. Roughly $2,000 more per student in that district than the Alamo Heights district. And then it's constitutional or it was ruled constitutional to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah. Um, the state constitution requires, uh, in, well, I think they use the word efficient public school system. And over the years, poor people in, in, in largely in San Antonio, you're right. Most of these cases about school finance, constitutional cases have come from San Antonio where they said, okay, what if we all were, why don't we get some money too? Because over the years, there are these rich little white enclaves in every city in in Texas. In Austin, it's Eanes County, like right, it's still kind of in Austin, but it's a really wealthy white district. In Dallas, it's even more insidious. There's Here's Dallas, and then right in the middle of it is a city called Highland Park. And you know, as soon as you drive into it, the streets are nicer. Oh my God, everything's bougie there. And then, then Dallas is just Dallas, right? And, but they did it so that they could keep all their money there. It is not, it is a revolutionary thought for the Texas revolution. They thought, okay, every Texas kid deserves an education, but they didn't mean every Texas kid, right? Because the Texas constitution required slavery. You could not be emancipated in the Republic of Texas. They did not consider Mexican citizens who are in the Texas boundary to be Texans. They literally meant only the white kids. 
and to make Texas accept every kid as a Texan has been part of the story of Texas. It's the transformation of it, right? And that's the, the story of the Alamo is there are good guys and bad guys, and it's all along racial and ethnic lines. And what we're trying to do in public schools is say, no, every single kid deserves the same. And that is part of the ongoing fight of Texas, because eventually, if you say every kid deserves the same education, someone's going to have to pay for it. And boy, people don't like paying for other kids here. Mm. Mm. And so what about for, for you, Jason? What have been some of the um, impact, impactful books you've read recently or uh, just your favorites that you want to recommend to our audience? Well, um, I've recently been on a data and baseball jag. Um, I'm a huge Orioles fan. And I wanted to figure, and it used to be with the Orioles were good, they just happened to be good. And you knew that they were good in sort of in spite of themselves and they could never develop players. Like they would draft good pitchers and you'd hope they'd turn out good and they usually wouldn't. And I was like, ah, damn. And then they go win a Cy Young somewhere else. <laughs> now, they figured out how to make people good, right? They mm. know how to develop players. I was like, how did this happen? So I've been reading about how the Astros did it because we got the guys from the Astros. We got Mark Elias and Sig, that NASA scientist, to do it here. And so I've been reading Astro Ball by Ben Ryder, a reader, I don't know how he pronounced his name. I've been reading The MVP Machine about how uh, these baseball nerds figure out how to use data to develop players. Instead of Moneyball was just about identifying inefficiencies and exploiting them. And sabermetric, you know, this new kind of data in baseball is about figuring out what really matters and how to teach people better. And there's a lot in what in, happened in baseball about 10 years ago that I think we're trying to do in education now because it all used to be about the test, right? And the test was about identifying, okay, who's doing well, who's not? But what if we use data and education to develop all of the kids, right? Because we got to believe that all the kids can do something. But right now, we've been using tests like the sorting hat. Okay, we all know how you're going to work out. What if we What if we treated it like the Astros? What if even Jose Altuve can become an MVP? The guy's 5'5", five, five, right? <laughs> wow. That, that didn't happen because someone believed in him. That happened because someone figured out how to use data to teach him better about how to exploit his talents. Wow. Yeah. So, really so I'm reading this going, oh, we can use this in education a lot. And actually this tracks over the way our superintendent is talking about education a lot. And so it helps me tell her story in a bigger way that she doesn't even realize is happening. And so I'm excited about that. And now with AI, we all got to figure out how to use data in our lives. Like, what does it mean? Is data going to run us or are we going to be able to use data to make us bigger versions of ourselves? So I'm, very excited about all that. But as far as a book yeah. that probably uh, a writer who changed the way I deal with the world is uh, a Ryan Holiday, a friend of mine. Really? Wrote a lot of books about stoicism, you yeah. know, uh, Ego is the Enemy, all those books. Um, yeah, uh, I, I feel a lot more in control of my own life because of wow. his books. Yeah. Wow. And he's in Austin, right? Just outside of Austin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, we, we're long, long time readers of his works. And yeah, talked about stillness is the key. Um, oh, yeah, that was recently. the first book I read. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Crazy. But 
thank you all so much, so, so much for, for coming on. Um, this has been such a treat and, you know, glad that, that we finally could have it. You guys are great. Just unpacking this story. You know, this is a, a book that I can't wait to, to share with, with more friends who are you know, <laughs> history buffs and yeah, really just fa fa fascinating story. I, I'm really glad, uh, Travis, you, you gave us the opportunity to, to read it, to talk with Jason. Uh, this has really been a treat. So yeah, Thank seriously, you. thanks y'all so much. Uh, I, I only wish, you know, uh, forget the Alamo was more of a resonant phrase in Chicago. You know, I'd be like, forget the Alamo. And people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, we didn't, we weren't thinking about it in the first place. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank Appreciate you for having me on. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a while. Like I've been waiting to talk to y'all for yeah, a that's right. Thank you, you know, so much. Yeah, that this past you know eighteen eighteen nineteen months in Which in is Europe is has really Dang. opened a lot of eyes, even more to just kind of what's going on in America. Because mm -hmm. being being in Eastern Europe for you know the last year and a half, and then coming back to America to see how things are, are going, it's just it's illuminating. Yeah. Like, like just even just one story before before we head out. So my landlord uh, while I was over there, because uh, I, I don't think I told Jason about this, but um, I went over still at the tail end of COVID. And I remember I remember signing my lease uh, in Constanza, which is a port city on the eastern seaboard, uh, right on the Black Sea. And she had all these questions about just America and American policy. And we got on the topic of vaccines and her growing up in Bulgaria and then immigrating to Romania. And she just couldn't fathom the the freedom thing. She really couldn't. She asked me, she was like, well, Travis, why? how can somebody decline the vaccine? I was, and I was like, ma'am, uh, it's just America. <laughs> like you, you can do what you want. She was like, they wouldn't let that happen here. You have to do it because you, we care about everybody else. So they should make everybody in America do that. It's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Not gonna happen. Yeah, but, but it's been it's been great coming back, but it's also illuminating. Yeah. What What do you think is like the main way that? What do you What do you think is like the main way you've shifted your mindset about? Um, America since being back. Oh man, I am. I guess I'm just more open to hearing people and being where they are. Because I know I told y'all that before, but yeah. I think it's even more pronounced now. Because as far and as wide as I have traveled, and as many different people have I I have met. I still think that everybody has the basic same humanity and the basic need to just want to live and do well. No matter where, what country you're in, we're just all trying to get by. Mm -hmm. And we're all trying to figure out and see what our place in this world is. It doesn't matter if you're Bulgarian, Greek, Italian, American, Mexican. We're all just trying to figure it out. Mm and we're all just trying to get by. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Real Ballers Read. 
You can find Forget the Alamo at your local library or bookstore. Feel free to support Jason on his Substack and Travis on his Instagram page at Let Us Talk Books. Thank you again for listening to this episode and you can catch us in the next one. Talk to you soon. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.